We are in Acts chapter 11 this week. And uh, so grab your Bible. You can grab the Bibles in front of you in the pew. They don't exactly match up with our translation. Someday, God willing, they will. Uh, <clears throat> whatever it is you've got the word in front of you, though, we want you to get it out. We want you to see the word, to follow along as we read and as we, we work through this text today. Um, and as a reminder, last week we, we saw the gospel come to a man named Cornelius. He was a Gentile. Uh, we're not going to review it too much because actually the first 18 verses of chapter 11 are a review of what happened because uh, Peter has to give an account to the other apostles. Uh, because the other apostles weren't there to be an eyewitness to what God was doing, bringing salvation to Gentiles. So, of course, they have questions. And we're going to see those questions come to light here. And then in the second half of our text, we're going to see the next stage in the spread of the gospel. And you might remember, even back to Acts, the very first week we looked at it, Acts chapter 1, Jesus kind of gives an outline for the book of Acts. He gives an outline for the way the gospel uh, salvation is going to go and cover the entire, entire globe. And uh, there Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the, end of the, world, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and the journey to the end of the earth uh, starts with one single step, and today we're going to see that step. Um, today we're going to see the gospel just burst outside the borders of Israel uh, and come to God's people in Phoenicia, Antioch, and the island nation of Cyprus. And so uh, starting this morning, we're going to read the first 18 verses. We'll kind of go through that, and then we'll read the second half. So it's kind of two parts to the, to the text today. So Acts chapter 11, follow along, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a, vo a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at, the very, at that very moment, three men arrived at, the, at, my, at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in, uh, standing in his house <clears throat> uh, and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. 
great God over the world, you who call each star by name, you who put everything into motion and who has endowed us with language to explain what you have done in creation and in the history of redemption. May we hear your word this day and find our lives enlightened, our sense of reality and eternity recalibrated to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we won't spend a whole lot of time on this first portion since uh, we covered the events in great detail last Sunday. Uh, I do want, wish to point out a few things as we go through this. First, uh, word gets to Jerusalem uh, that the Gentiles have believed the gospel. And remember, a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. And so uh, in their view, the world was divided into two groups. There were the Jewish people, and in their mind, these are you know, the people of God and the good people. And there were Gentiles, and those were outside of the, kind of the, the reach of God's grace in their view. Um, even seen as kind of unchoosable. Uh, so you'd think that the Gentiles coming to faith would just be reason for them to rejoice, for the believers to rejoice, you know, the, the gospel is spreading. And, and yet already we're seeing that within this group of believers, there is this, this faction, this, this group uh, that hears this news, and they're very critical of Peter for, for what he's done. Uh, verse 2 refers to, refer, refers to them uh, as the circumcision party, you know, um, an odd name to go by. Uh, but what it is, is it's, it's Jewish Christians who were of the opinion that circumcision was a necessary requirement of believing the gospel. And we're going to see this in much more detail in the next few chapters later, but uh, for now we'll leave it at just that. Uh, keep in mind, their intentions are good. They're wanting to protect the gospel. They're wanting to keep things right. And so the, it's easy to look at them with negative sense, but, but their intentions are good. Um, and, and the problem here is they're adding something to the gospel. Uh, and like I said, it'll become a bigger deal. Uh, but right now we're seeing, they're just shocked that Peter had, had a meal with these people. That's their view of Gentiles at this point. That he would even have a meal, let alone that he would, he'd preach the gospel to them. Um, and so he's just, they're just floored by this. Uh, and as we think through this, I want us not to forget, though, that, that Peter himself, you remember last chapter, was struggling with this idea himself, this idea of meeting Cornelius. You were unclean. I shouldn't even be talking to you. Um, and then in verse eight, 18, uh, we see that believers in Jerusalem eventually believe that Peter was obeying God, and, and they fall silent. Okay, That means they stopped objecting. They get on board with what God's doing. They believe that it is God who is doing this and is bringing the gospel uh, to those outside of Judaism, people who are, no longer, who are not Jews. Um, and then we're seeing this where the church has experienced the very first fruits uh, of what Paul writes about in Romans 1.16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And our text then says that they glorified God. We talk a lot about, you know, glorifying God. It's, it's interesting to see. Do you see how they glorify God here? Um, the scripture tells us here that they glorify God by saying. Words came out of their mouth. They were saying something. Verse 18. Um, they glorify God by saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They acknowledge what God is doing. Uh, they're acknowledging that these people who are not Jews, um, and, and yet God is giving them true faith. He's given them true repentance that leads to new life. Uh, you might ask, what is repentance, right? Uh, and this is one of those opportunities where we get to say, well, our doctrinal statement, uh, one of them, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, actually answers that question. What is repentance unto life, right? 
And you wonder, well, why wasn't that in our affirmation of faith today? Because we did it two weeks ago. That's why. So I'm going to read it to you. It says, the answer that is given there is repentance unto life as a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of endeavor after new obedience. You see, the ability to repent of sin is a God-given gift. Uh, that is one of the ways that we know that we are truly filled with the Spirit, that we, that we know that we have genuine faith in Christ, is that we will repent of sin. Um, it's as simple as, as confessing that uh, to God in prayer that what we have done is sinful, it was wrong, please forgive me. Um, you know, and I mentioned that so you understand, you don't need a, a rosary, you just need a contrite heart, which is a gift of God. Uh, that's why the Lord's Supper, we'll partake in it later, that's why in the Lord's Supper, though, we don't ask you, have you sinned this week, right? Um, and it's a good thing, because if that was the question we were asking, we wouldn't even need to sign anyone up to bake bread. We would never, ever, ever need a loaf of bread, because none of you, none of us, would ever be able to eat of it, Ever. Um, so, according to, to Scripture, though, we, we ask something along the lines of, do you confess that you're a sinner? Do you understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and is Jesus your Savior? That's the question we ask. Uh, and so in this, as we see the gospel comes to Gentiles, and, uh, and it's a, a wonderful, beautiful thing as it's, as it's going out, and it makes perfect sense then that, that the story is going to change here, starting in verse 19, Luke the author of Acts is, is going to change directions, and yet it stays along the same line as the gospel going outside of Israel, outside of the Jews. Uh, so follow along. We're going to read verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. Uh, so a lot of good stuff here. Uh, begin with this. If you ever asked yourself, what is the purpose of the church? You know, what, what should the church be about? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, we can't just look at the churches in our culture to find an answer to this question. The reason we can't do that is because if you just looked at the churches in the American culture, uh, you'd find many theories about what the church is trying to be, or you'd see many, many uh, practices of what the church is trying to be. Uh, things like uh, a country club where there's this prestige and membership. Uh, networking is highly valued in that sense. Or you might see uh, it's set up where it's family entertainment, where there's a program for every age and every subcategory that you can even imagine. Uh, some are essentially group counseling or self-help sorts of speeches. Others are primary mercy ministry, caring for the needs of the community and doing very little more than that. Some exist as a sort of theological education. It's a purely intellectual exercise. 
And so while it's unfortunate that we can't look at churches in our culture to find an answer to this question, it's very fortunate that we can look to Scripture and find uh, a truly God-given answer to what the church should be about. In fact, if, if you've been here through this, this sermon series on Acts, we've already seen a, lot of an- a, a number of answers to this. We've seen, uh, you might remember Acts 2.42. We learned that the church in Jerusalem focused on, as it says, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and prayers. In Acts 4.32, we saw that sharing was an important aspect of the church. It says, now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said one thing, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, or sharing. We've also seen many times that the church should be evangelizing. You remember in Acts 8.4, 8, Samaritans came to have faith in Jesus. This was a surprise to the church at the time. Uh, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, it says. And we're going to see that in our text today. And so, you know, looking back then, you know, to our text today, uh, we're going to see something amazing, something I find amazing, the fact that God uses persecution to scatter the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, It's fuel for the Great Commission. Uh, Remember, the believers in Jerusalem were scattered because Stephen was stoned. He was put to death, and they realized, okay, these people are not real friendly to us, and they just leave. And and today we're learning about those who went to Phoenicia and, and to Cyprus, Cyprus is that island kind of off the coast of Israel. It still exists today. It is still a nation to this day. Uh, And we're learning about those who fled to Antioch. Antioch uh, also still exists, but it's just ruins. No one lives there. Uh, So really, it doesn't actually exist. It was the capital of Syria at the time, a very significant city. Uh, And these people, they fled in fear when they could have hid out. They could have just hid out at this point. Uh, And I want us to see here, though, that the first characteristic we see in, in this text is that they are evangelistic. They're still preaching the gospel, even in the face of of persecution. There's fear, right? But they're still preaching the gospel. Uh, And they share the gospel with others. You know, at first they they spoke only to Jews. That's kind of what they were comfortable doing. People that looked like them, spoke like them. People they were real comfortable with. And and then, you know, there's this crazy group that starts to speak to the Hellenists. Uh, Remember, Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Gentiles in this case, similar to Cornelius in the previous chapter. That's that's why this story you'll see right after that. Uh, And the truth of the gospel just flowed freely from their mouths, and I love that, um, you know, because they just seem free to tell it to anyone. They're not so worried about the results or or, or what they're saying or how it's going to be received. Uh, You know, I'll I'll remind you, uh, uh, my pastor in Kansas City often said that uh, gospel faithfulness is about proclaiming the gospel, not results. When we understand that, there's a a relief that comes. You know, you feel free that I can share the gospel and and just let God do what God does. See, a big part of this uh, sharing the gospel aspect is simply getting to know people in the community. Uh, Many of you receive the the email we send out every week. Uh, There's a community section in there, and it's a lot of things that you look at and you might think, well, those are just dumb community events. Uh, We put them in there on purpose. We put them in there so that uh, you'll be able to go out and and meet people in the community, to learn to talk to people. Uh, It's not because we want you to go to one of these events and within two seconds start sharing the gospel with some stranger. If you do that, great. More power to you. Uh, But more than anything, we're hoping you make some relationships. You put yourself in a position to to know some people outside of your natural circle that that at some point you're able to share your own faith in Christ with them. In verse 21, we, we read that the hand of the Lord was with them. What they did was scatter the seed of the gospel. 
They planted, and it was God who made it grow. It was God who grew the faith in the hearts of these people. And we see the result of that. Uh, it says they turned to the Lord. The assumption is that they were, <clears throat> figuratively speaking, walking in the opposite direction of God, and then they turned to the Lord. That's repentance. Uh, we've, seen that in, uh, <clears throat> we've seen that Jerusalem as this sort of command center then in the early church. Every time something happens anywhere, they're sending someone out to figure out what's going on or calling someone back to explain what's going on. And the believers there hear that the gospel is being received by Hellenists in Antioch, and so they send this guy named Barnabas out there um, to go check it out. Um, Barnabas' son, or his name literally means son of encouragement. Uh, you see, often these names were given to, to people because they explain kind of the character of that individual. And so son of encouragement is exactly the kind of name you want. It's exactly the kind of thing we see from Barnabas uh, in, in the scriptures as he, he comes to interact with people. Uh, and it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what, what would your name be if you were just given a name like that? Would you be son of encouragement? Um, you kind of fear it'd be something negative, like we, we call him complains about people. Or this is bitter of the past. Um, she is daughter of grumpiness. You know, those are the kind of names you fear you get. Uh, or would it be something positive? Would, would we give you a name like, you know, his name is Laughs-a-Lot, or she is Joy for Life. Um, maybe one who cares about people. I mean, those are the kind of names you want, and that's the kind of name we see that Barnabas has. Uh, son of encouragement. Like I said, we immediately see that in his life. Verse 23. You see that he saw the grace of God... And he was glad. Those words have just gotten to me this week. He was glad. It should be obvious, but it made me kind of stop and think, is, is that my response? Is that our, our response to the grace of, of God in others? Can we be glad when God does something amazing in someone's life? <clears throat> you know, anytime we're asking why did they get something and I don't? We've, we've failed to be glad for the grace of God in someone's life. You know, why, are, why are they pregnant and I'm not? Why did they get promoted and I did not? Why, why does she get recognized for serving and I serve all the time and don't get recognized? Why does she always have a boyfriend and I'm still single? But Barnabas here is, is glad. And I love that because I see that I think I want to be the kind of person who is glad when they see the grace of God in any capacity in someone's life. Um, it says then that Barnabas uh, is glad and he exhorts them. That's a word we just kind of understand. I'm not even sure if that's an insult or a compliment sometimes. Uh, what it means is to strongly encourage someone or to urge someone to do something. And in this case, he's encouraging and urging them to remain faithful to the Lord and to do so with steadfast purpose. Now, I'd be an absolute foolish pastor if I didn't do the same. And, and so as we consider what the church should be about, let's be in certain that we include this, this statement that we remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. See, it's easy to fall away from kind of central purposes, uh, particularly in a church. We're, we're still a, a fairly young church plant by, by most standards. Uh, we've only been meeting weekly for worship for the uh, 17 months now. We've been in this building less than a year. Uh, and there's something to be said of simplicity here. 
See, over the years, I've noticed this pattern in churches and church plants. They, they begin with Bible studies, and then they have a corporate worship service, and then they just kind of go nuts, and they start adding programs for every little list of wants that anyone wants. And, you know, we want a men's group, and then there's a men's group, and we want a women's group, and there's a women's group, and Sunday school, and youth group, and dinner club, and a, a program for, you know, new mothers and those who are in grief. And before you know it, you've got like the, you know, a, future pilots club for six-year-olds because someone's mother you know thought it might help encourage other people to want to be a pilot if we had a club like this and so we have it now uh, and these aren't bad things it's not like anyone's starting the you know the premeditated murder club or anything like that <laughs> but the unfortunate side effect is that everyone's exhausted and disappointed they're exhausted from constantly going um, and they're disappointed because you know they're, they're asking things like you know why didn't you come to our our toddler's pilot club this week. I'm like, well, you know, we wanted to, but it was at the same time as the adult children of elderly breakdancers club, and <laughs> so we couldn't make it. So, you know, it, it's kind of funny, but all joking aside, there, there's something to be said of simplicity in the church that keeps a clear focus uh, on the main things, and the way you do that is by not having so many side projects. And it's very difficult to keep a simplicity like that. I can tell you, we've already struggled with that. Um, I kind of think of it like this, though. As Laura and I were talking the other day, and, and it kind of came to my mind this idea that, you know, no one really wants to be the cat lady. Do you know what the cat lady is? Um, that's the lady that lives in solitude, except for the hundred cats that also live with her. Uh, and the cat lady becomes the cat lady by taking everyone else's cat when they're ready to get rid of it. I know these people exist because I've given them our cat before. <laughs> We've also given our dog away this way twice. Um, full disclosure, we give away a lot of pets. Um, really fun to get, really sad to get rid of, but cat ladies exist, they'll take them for you. Uh, and, and so anyway, you become like the cat lady when, when, when we're willing to take responsibility for, for someone else's project or every little project that someone has, you know, they're passionate about it and they're ready to get it started and then they've lost interest or they had to move on, they don't have time for it. Here, you carry this project for us. And before you know it, uh, you're the cat lady. Churches are notorious for this. You know, someone's passionate about something and, and they get the church to start the program for it and then they're like, ah, we can't make it, we don't have time, we have soccer that night. Uh, something like that happens and the end result is the church has these 40 different programs for every, you know, everything you can possibly think of, and they do a terrible job with all of them. Um, and it's the same way, you know, the cat lady can't go out. She can't have friends over. She can't interact with anyone. Her whole life is tied up in man maintaining her 100 cats at home. And, and my point is this. We, we say that we want to be a church. Um, as a church, we want to be a, a witness to the city of Manhattan. You know, we want to be a witness to the campus of K-State and the people of Fort Riley. And, and that means we've got to make sure that we're not spending every waking hour of your life in this building or doing just church things. Because if we're not careful, we put you in a bubble real quick, and that's where you live. Uh, and that means we have to constantly refocus on what is a priority and what is not. Uh, so I'll say this. The biggest priority that we have is that we gather together to worship God on Sunday mornings, on the Lord's Day, every Sunday here. As someone who's been called to, to shepherd you, I have no qualms about saying that. Sunday worship ought to be a priority in your life and the life of your family. I know things come up. I'm not saying be here at all means, like risk your life to be here. But I'm saying it should be a priority in your life. Everything else we do as a church is bonus. 
Notice I did not say everything else is unimportant. I'm saying it's not the priority. And so, yes, we have small groups. We call them parish groups. And these are wonderful. They exist for, for building relationships in the, in the church community and for fostering mutual encouragement and for learning God's word as we, we actively apply it to our lives, our actual particular lives, as we share food together. Uh, <clears throat> it's a great thing. But again, Sunday morning is, is, the pri- is, is the priority when we meet to worship God. Um, and so we have small groups because they're a great benefit for us to, to grow together as a community. But again, the priority is worship. Uh, we do book studies. From time to time, these are co-ed. From time to time, these are men's or women's groups, various things of that nature. Um, there's the occasional guys' night, girls' night. Uh, these are just social times to hang out, get to know people. There's children's Sunday school. Right now, we do it eight weeks in the spring and eight weeks in the fall. Uh, this is intentional because we wish to assist parents in the discipleship of your children. And yet we don't want to, we want to make it very clear that the primary responsibility, uh, parents, of discipleship of your children has been given by God to you. Um, and that's a reason at this point we don't have Sunday school every week. Uh, uh, there is this idea. We don't want you to lean on that too much. Uh, also, uh, as a church, we... We don't desire to be like buckets where we just collect the blessings of God. There's a temptation in churches to do that. Uh, and, and the other component of this is that we'd rather function like a pipe where the love of God flows through us to others. Uh, meaning before we, we move on, I want to mention one thing. Our desire is to be a closely knit body of believers who are quick to welcome new people into this covenant family. Here's the deal, though. There is no program that can adequately accomplish that. You know, you can sit and wish and hope that there's this, this connection or people are interacting, but there is no program that can accomplish that. Uh, the one thing we found that works wonders for getting to know people is having them over for a meal or going out for a meal somewhere, just getting together over food. Uh, one family, a few individuals, a few college students, um, nothing big. I think sometimes we think it has to be a huge party of some sort. Just come on over for food and then carry on, right? Uh, and so let me encourage you, encourage you, if you are able to do this, to have someone over for a meal, to go out and have a meal together, do that. It is such a wonderful blessing. It will seem like a pain, especially right before it comes up, and you will find yourself blessed. Amazing to get to know people that way. Okay, so I'm getting a little bit away from the text here. Let's look back at verse 24. Uh, there we see the results of the church being the church. It tells us that a great many people were added to the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, I don't know if you realize this all the time. That's, that's people coming to faith. People who are under the wrath of God because of their sin, being covered by the blood of Christ. What a beautiful thing there. You know, we just read it. A great many people were added to the Lord. And then in verse 25, Barnabas goes and finds Saul in Tarsus. Remember they sent Saul away because there were Hellenists that were wanting to kill him. And now all these Hellenists have come to faith. And, and he's like, well, let's go get Paul. He's safe now, maybe. Uh, I don't know. But he brings him back to Antioch. And, and there... Um, do you notice what Saul and, and Barnabas do? They taught. They're building up the body of Christ in Antioch. They're teaching for a year, it says. Um, there's two ways that we can err as a church in regards to what we see in this text. Uh, the first is this. Uh, we could focus only on ourselves, lots of theology classes, and no evangelism of any sort. Who cares about them? Let's just learn theology. Uh, a church like that is like a, a pool that is 12 feet deep with no shallow end. Good swimmers are going to love it. 
Uh, but there is no place for children. There is no place for beginners to, to get comfortable and learn, learn the way. Um, the other way we can err is on the other side of that, where we focus only on evangelism. In these settings, churches make the worship service uh, is, is reconfigured so that it appeals to people even who don't believe in Jesus. Uh, and so even when the motives are good by desiring to see people come to faith, and, and, and that's usually true, the side effect is that the body of believers is not built up. The people do not grow through the study of God's word. And a church like this is like a baby pool, you know, a foot deep all the way across. Um, everyone can stand in it. There's no danger for anyone in that regard. But, but there's no place to learn to swim. There is no place to dive down deep. And it doesn't prepare anyone for swimming in the world. In other words, the body of believers never mature. I, and I'll tell you that we are aiming to be a deep pool with a shallow end. A shallow end for those who are new to Christianity or, or are still considering the claims of Christ. Uh, and that means that, yes, we evangelize all of us um, as individuals. There's no program for that, okay? Uh, but it means that we're willing to, to feel comfortable enough about what we believe in the gospel that we're not afraid to share that with somebody. Uh, and this means, you know, in little ways that we define theological terms. Um, can't just assume people understand them. But it also means that we dig into the word of God, um, that we are doing it to build up the body, just like we see Paul and Barnabas doing in the text here. And they're teaching here because there is this focus on discipleship, right? Um, I think sometimes we, we've come to like convert in our heads the Great Commission uh, and, and think that it says, you know, make converts of all nations. That's not what it says. It says, it says to make disciples of all nations. And that's why we see in verse 26 that, that they're first called Christians here. Um, it means followers or, or disciples of Christ. And, you know, you and I were so familiar with this term. It's the most common term that we use for explaining someone who believes in Jesus, right? But, uh, but it actually shows up only three times in Scripture. That surprised me. Surprised you? Only three times. We see it here in this text, uh, verse 26, and then in 1 Peter 4.16, um, and it's believed that it was this derogatory term for Christians, not necessarily a, a positive thing, because it was a name from outsiders being given to Christians. Um, that it's not a name they came up with themselves. Lots of groups end up with names from the outside or from group, people outside their group. Laura and I learned this week, we were watching the show that gave us all these like uh, down south slang terms, or not slang terms, I guess uh, the etymology of words you wouldn't think you know. And one of them was redneck. You might not be surprised to find out that the term redneck is actually in Presbyterian history. Uh, it's tied to Presbyterians. Back in the 1630s, long time ago, the Scottish Presbyterians signed this national covenant, and some of them were like so incited about this that they signed it in their own blood. And, and to signify that, they wore this red cloth around their neck. So you get it, red neck. Um, they eventually go to Ireland. The Irish don't like them and kick them out because they're kind of a rowdy group. Uh, they come to the United States. All the good land is taken up, so they send them into the Appalachian Mountains and down south. Uh, and, and so as they settle there, they're still called the rednecks. Um, because of a lot of these people's behavior, that's why we now associate the term redneck the way we do. Uh, but the history of it's this awesome story of signing a covenant in your blood. I guess that's awesome. <clears throat> so anyway, there's this significance here in our text that it calls them Christians. I don't know if you even realize this, but um, you know, they didn't call them Jesusites or Jesusens. Uh, Jesus was his name, Jesus of Nazareth. What they call them are, are Christians. And, and the significance here is that the word Christ is a, is a title, um, a title meaning Messiah. And, and so we're, we're learning here that they understood these, these people didn't just follow Jesus 
like a rabbi, like some, some good teacher. Um, but they believed and they taught that Jesus was the Messiah. That was the significant thing about them. And, and that's why they, they have this word Christian to, to refer to them. Uh, and I'll encourage you, you know, embrace the word Christian. Every so often I talk to someone who's like, uh, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I won't use the word Christian. And then, come on. Um, it describes what we believe about Christ, that he is the Messiah. Uh, so let's take a quick look at those last four verses, starting in verse 27. Uh, it turns, it seems a little strange, so it says this. Uh, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So it's a little strange. Uh, this term prophet technically means someone who proclaims the word of God. We, you know, it, it's... Uh, the Puritans, actually, when they talked about preaching, they referred to it as prophesying. I remember the first time I found a book called The Art of Prophesying, and it was a Puritan book, and I couldn't make sense of it until I realized that it means someone who proclaims God's word. Um, and, and that's why they would call preaching that, because expounding and proclaim, it's pro- expounding and proclaiming the word of God. So the prophet in this text, though, fits every kind of preconceived idea you have about a prophet, that he's telling um, about a future event, and he's telling a prediction like that. Uh, in this case, that a famine is coming, that there won't be enough food for people, um, and it would be widespread. <clears throat> now, history actually records this famine taking place uh, 46 to 48 AD. Uh, apparently, there was a river that flooded and ruined a bunch of farmland, and uh, that was what led to it. But uh, what's interesting here is that you'd expect that you'd hear famine coming. Um, you know, what do most of us do when we see that? We hoard, right? Well, let's collect all of our money, our food, whatever it is coming that, you know, this fear, let's hoard stuff for ourselves. Uh, and what we see them doing here is they collect funds locally and they send it to Christians who apparently are going to be more affected by it. Um, I, I love that we see here, even though they're told about the famine in this supernatural way, the solution was not given to them in any supernatural way. Uh, there was some conversation that took place in the church. Well, how are we going to help them? Well, you know, why don't we all give some money? And so they do. Uh, in verse 29, we learn that each gave according to his ability. Notice this is voluntary giving, and they are giving to people that they choose to give to. And I point that out because I want you to understand this is not the same thing as socialism, uh, despite it being used as a social, socialism text at times. Uh, so, this whole chapter in Acts, uh, it's a little strange to apply, I can admit that. Uh, but I want us to have seen this, that I want us to have seen that Uh, The believers carried the gospel with them wherever they went, and they were faithful to share it with others. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things. That's why I love that you guys are in school and in classes and clubs uh, that are in in jobs all over the place, because that's how the gospel gets to people that need to hear it. Very rarely does someone who wants to know nothing about Christianity walk through that door and listen. When they do, we're excited. They might come because you invite them. Uh, but it is rare. I mean, what does happen is you get to know people. And they realize, here's a nice person. What's unique about them? You start talking about your Savior. You don't even have to give them a presentation. Just be open about your love for Christ, and that will speak wonders. 
Um, but they're willing to, to, to share all that. They also see in this text that uh, they were faithful to build up the body through teaching and faithful to share in their financial resources for the sake of the gospel. And, and the reason that we're seeing this, I think, I really believe we're seeing is this, is they're so willing to share themselves, they're, uh, they're so, so freely, is that they understand how much they have received from the hand of God who gave them faith to have salvation, faith in Christ. Um, they've received so much that they're willing to, to give. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, your, your hand was with the church in Antioch. And our prayer is that your hand will be with us here in the Flint Hills. So that we might see glorious results of sinners believing the Gospels and saints growing in their faith. And so help us to evangelize. Just to speak of the hope that we have in you. Uh, to welcome those who are new to the faith, those who are new to this covenant community. Make us faithful to give to the needs of saints as well as to give to the needs of our neighbors. I mean, we never view ourselves above those you wish for us to reach. Uh, yes, Lord, give us humility. May your love for us overflow from our hearts and draw others to the Savior who died for the sin of all who would believe in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.